Hi there. I'm Dr. Sarah Wilson, naturopathic doctor, author, practice mentor, researcher, and passionate connector of the dots of health. As the medical director of Advanced Women's Health and the founder of Naturopathic Clinical Mentorship, I help patients and practitioners to deeply understand the connection between hormones and inflammation so that they can improve their most complex health concerns or cases. Advanced Women's Health, the podcast, is a space for practitioners and discerning health consumers to learn about cutting-edge research in the area of women's health. Before we get started, though, let's set the ground rules. This information is not meant to diagnose or treat. I am a doctor, but not your doctor. I completely understand that you're going to want to implement some of these strategies. We are talking about really compelling stuff, but please always do so with a medical practitioner's support. So let's dive in. Welcome back, everyone. Today, we are going to break down a topic that I am, to be completely honest, absolutely floored that I have not talked about here. Um, and it was actually uh, feedback from my latest Advanced Women's Therapeutics group, where they were like, Sarah, we love listening to the podcast, but you have not broken down these certain topics yet. Um, And so I always love receiving emails like that because it always helps to guide what I'm teaching you. So from that standpoint, please, please always feel free to give me feedback on those things because I see a lot of you listening, uh, which is also super fun. And thank you for that. So today we're going to talk about histamine and Histamine is something I teach a lot about. It's something I talk a lot about with patients because it goes back to those foundational areas of health. And we're going to get into this in much more detail coming up because it's absolutely critical that you understand these seemingly quote unquote minor factors that literally impact every area of the body. This is why I talk so much about inflammatory processes in general, and I break down different cytokine pathways. This is why I talk about mitochondrial function. This is why I talk about insulin signaling, because these mechanisms dictate what happens to someone's stress response. They dictate how someone's hormones are made and how someone responds to those hormones. So If we don't have health in foundational areas, you can do as much spot treatment as you want. If the foundation of the house is broken, then painting is not going to help. And it'll help you feel better (laughs) if someone's buying your house, God bless, then it will help them to feel better, right? But it's short-term fixes. And I think the reason why my methods and my models are so successful is because I refuse to sit in short-term wins. I refuse to accept that just because we don't understand the direct pathway that XYZ treatment for mitochondrial function gives the downstream outcome of improvement in XYZ hormone means that we don't treat like that. It's it's foundational. It's obvious. And it's funny because 
in my life, having so many passions and having so many different things. Um, I am a what they call a Colby Quick Start. <laughs> so I always have 10,000 ideas, which I'm sure many of you on the back end have witnessed. Um, but in order to do that, I have to do things in an incredibly efficient way. And so I always ask, like, what's the most efficient way to get the result of improving someone's energy, helping to support their hormones, their fertility, their pain, whatever their symptoms are, right? So I always draw out patient's constellation of symptoms was the most efficient way to do this. So many of you with the most love and respect I can make this comment with, spend your time being like, okay, so there's this symptom here, so I'm going to give them this for that. There's this symptom here, I'm going to give them this for that. There's this symptom here, I'm going to give, oh yeah, okay, mm, we need two products to accomplish that. And then you miss the point. And again, I say this with the most love and respect in the world. You're here to learn. If you are sitting here in your ego, I don't want you in my world anyways, right? We all need to fail forward. I am sure that in five years from now, I will listen to some of the things that I have posted or taught about and be like, oh, cute, Sarah, because research is constantly evolving and changing and it's a practice, the practice of medicine, right? So you're constantly going to have that next evolution, which is just critical to being good at your job. But I digress as usual. So today I want to talk about histamine because it's needed, beginning and end of story. So I'm going to talk about it specifically today with respect to pain and migraine because that was a research article that recently came out um, that tickled my fancy and it was something that I thought we frequently overlook and frequently miss. So in the last few years in general, there has been a really dramatic change in the understanding of histamine and how it functions in the body and the importance of it in different areas. So when we think of histamine, 90% of the time, the thought process is, I have allergies, I'm sneezing, or I take an H2 blocker for stomach acid. That's the thought process, but there's actually four histamine receptors. And what's really important to remember is that Again, these are foundational mechanisms of the body. These things are life-saving axis. And so they're going to have slightly different functions, but they're all going to come down to kind of very similar outcome, I guess, um, because downstream life-saving systems. So allergic inflammation is your classic H1 receptor function. That's where we're going to see edema. That's why we're going to see swelling, itching eyes. We're going to see um, someone having like itching because there's all those kind of inflammatory compounds in the skin. H2 is, as I said, going to be your gastric, gastric acid secretion largely. H4 is very immunomodulatory. So it's very much to do with how other aspects of the immune system um, interact and respond. And there's a lot more research coming out on that one. And then H3 is very interesting because we believe that it's autoregulatory. And so it's one of those things that with small amounts you get a good thing with high amounts, it's going to dampen or decrease. So it's like a little bit of histamine refined, a lot of histamine, it's going to auto-regulate and say, no, nah, we need to turn down the signal on that. And that's very involved in neurocognitive function. And I think that's important to understand because when, when you're going through 
the list. And if you look it up online, I think I have an article or something on it too. But um, when you look at the list of histamine symptoms, right? So histamine intolerance, and we might actually do a whole episode just specifically on that. Um, but when we're looking at these different elements of what does histamine produce in the body? It can be very overwhelming and hard to understand. And I actually hear this all the time um, when I'm working with practitioners is it's like, okay, this is your kind of classic list. Someone has allergic reactions. They have reactions after food. They have anxiety. They have difficulty sleeping. They are going to have a variety of digestive issues. We're going to see like the list goes on and on and on. Right. And people are like, how is that even a thing? Like, how is it possible that higher low blood pressure is related to this? And so you really do need to understand what is happening because your patients will ask those questions too. And don't get me wrong. A patient loves when I go through a checklist and they're like, yes, 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 yes. Nausea, car sick, seasick. Oh my goodness. How did you know these things? Right? So you do sound pretty brilliant when you go through that checklist, let's be honest. Um, but at the same time, specifically that like a lot of patients are going to have questions like how the heck are these things related? So when you understand the four types of histamine responses, uh, receptors, sorry, it can be very, very helpful. So when we're looking at the different types of histamine responses in the body, we can have a normal level of histamine and have an over response to it, an increased response um, or slightly increased levels of histamine. That's what we typically think of with histamine intolerance. Um, you can have mast cell activation syndrome, which is where you have a normal amount of mast cells. They just offload all of their histamine and a bajillion other things, right? Mast cells are not just histamine, really important to remember. Um, so you can have that, or you can have a situation where you have mastocytosis, which is essentially a change in the mast cells so that you have a lot of them. So those are the basics of the different things that we're looking at. Um, and we're trying to figure out, okay, why is one arm of the immune system more active? Why is the body over responding? What's happening here? And so Histamine, when we're talking about histamine, does mainly come from mast cells, basophils, but it also comes from bacteria. So we forget we have these internal sources of histamine production because they can produce histamine through histidine, hi, yeah, histidine um, decarboxylase. And so when we're looking at different types of bacteria, obviously they're going to have a different result in terms of how many they can make. So you want to look at, okay, what are the types of bacteria I might be fighting? Is it just a general overgrowth? What are we dealing with here that's contributing to this increased histamine production in the gut? And then we, of course, always need to look at food-based histamine responses. I find in my practice 90% of the time that you should not have a food-based histamine response. It just doesn't make sense, right? So we all have histamine in our food. Aged foods have, and fermented foods, cultures were raised on that. Like that is how we survive to get where we are today. So we should not have these massive responses to the amount of histamine in food. So if you do, there's a bigger issue, right? Um, I always say it could be the last drop in the bucket, but it's still a therapeutic tool that you have access to if you need it. So when, again, we typically think of that histamine response, we're thinking about blood vessels dilating, we're thinking about airways constricting, we're thinking about itchiness. Um, but there's a variety of symptoms as we talked about before. So feeling like vestibular issues, seasickness, dizziness, um, feeling, and it's funny, actually, <laughs> my poor family, <laughs> they get talked about on here all the time, but 
allergy season has been really bad in my area this year because we were essentially cold, 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 hot. And so it was a situation where all of the allergens just bloomed at the same time. It wasn't as progressive as a season as it normally is. And my mom has allergies and woke up one morning and she was like, I'm nauseous. I'm dizzy. Like, I don't know if I'm sick. I don't know what's going on. Like, I just feel weak. I don't feel great. And I was like, it's probably your allergies. Gave her some allergy meds and she felt better right? And she was like, wow, okay, I don't think I've had that experience before. And I was like, yeah, it's just, again, when you can understand the vestibular interaction of histamine, when you can understand um, like a typical profile, which is sneezing, eyes watering, etc., in combination with some of these other symptoms, magic can really happen and you can make really big changes for patients. Um, the other thing to think about is that there's a lot of menstrual related issues with histamine Build up. So for whatever reason, either histamine responses or increased histamine. And there's a lot of reasons um, why that happens. Again, a little bit beyond what we can talk about in a lot of detail here. But I think it's really important to know that the mast cells are very sensitive to hormonal changes and imbalances. And so we can see an increased amount of histamine release during certain periods of the menstrual cycle, which can then contribute to a variety of different symptoms. And the more and more research comes out, the more and more connection there is to endometriosis, PCOS, uh, dysmenorrhea, so many other things. So just a bit of an aside there, but actually not really because we're talking about migraine today. So with migraines, it makes a lot of sense that constriction and dilation of blood vessels um, is going to have an impact on migraines. There's an inflammatory process that's going to have an impact on migraines in a really significant way. We see that substance P and pain pathways are altered by histamine, which is involved with migraines. And so this conversation has kind of been ongoing for a very long time in the medical literature in terms of how and why these two things may be related. And so one of, a lot of the ways they study these things is they say, okay, let's infuse histamine and see what happens. So historically, we do know that an infusion of histamine can cause migraines. So there's a lot of provocation studies that have happened, um, which essentially just look at different ways to bring on a migraine, poor people, um, in people who are susceptible to them. And so interestingly enough, they've done sub-Q injections now, so not just infusions. And small amounts seem to be fine and maybe even helpful if someone already has a bit of a headache. But when we're getting into those larger amounts, that's where we're going to see kind of more reproducible, I guess I should say middle amounts, um, we're going to have migraine induction. And then in really elevated amounts, the H3 receptor, that autoregulatory receptor seems to be very importantly involved. And so we'll see that kind of downregulate production. But essentially, when we're looking at things all in all, mast cell degranulation and neurological inflammation are very, very well accepted to be linked to migraine. Histamine through vascular and inflammatory mechanisms have been connected um, to migraines. And then I don't love these studies, I'll be completely honest, because they're essentially what they're doing is saying people who have migraines, um, studies have been done that look at measuring the amount of histamine in their system. 
histamine is just very unstable. That's why not a lot of immunological or immunologists will measure it. They tend to go towards tryptase testing to understand what's going on. Um, it's just because histamine breaks down very, very quickly. And I know they say like half-life is two hours, but we do see these things change quite quickly. And so I just, I don't know that this is the most reproducible way. You really, if you're looking at the measurement of histamine in research studies, you really need to dive into the method section just to make sure they're properly assessing what that looks like. Um, because it, some studies show yes, there's an increase in histamine. Some studies show no, there's not. It's both the method section and I guess when they're testing it too. So as we know, histamine can fluctuate really dramatically. It can fluctuate with your menstrual cycle, with hormones. If you're postmenopausal, it can fluctuate with a variety of different inputs. Um, it's going to, it fluctuates with everything. It's what triggers you've had, what foods you've eaten, what bacteria you're pissed off. Like all of these things are different sources of fluctuation. And so Doing like serial measurements could be very interesting, but doing just kind of one-off measurements, I don't necessarily think is going to give us what we want to do or what we want to, to understand. So when we're looking outside of just histamine, because I guess from a treatment perspective, antihistamines are a very interesting approach and very interesting methodology to try out in someone who has migraines. And that's kind of what's been shown. Antihistamines have been used. They can be very helpful. Um, they can really make a difference in stabilizing someone's symptoms. But antihistamine, right? So histamine itself involved in migraine, we've talked about this. Antihistamine is just blocking the histamine receptor and saying, okay, cool, Bob's your uncle. But a lot of studies have showed that that's not quite enough, right? So histamine is involved for sure. We know this. And antihistamines give you some relief, but it's not complete and it's not as predictable in some patient situations as we would like it to be. So then of course, as a researcher, what do you have to do? You have to expand your thought process. So mast cells release a lot more than just histamine. And that's why I mentioned that earlier, right? So you can give someone an antihistamine, but if they have mast cell degranulation that is really acutely upregulated, then that's just one tiny piece of what that mast cell has the potential to do. It's got substance P, it's got VIP. There's so many neuroactive peptides in there. There are different cytokines that are in there. There's different um, like serotonin and different pieces like that. There's a lot of pieces of a mast cell puzzle. So then people have now kind of turned their attention to what we can do with mast cells. And there is evidence that mast cell degranulation activates um, nociceptors in the meninges, it can have um, a very big potential with neurotransmitters um, and how presynaptically both histamine and mast cell degranulation can affect those and neuroactive peptides, um, how all of these things can play together. The reason why I bring up the difference between histamine and mast cell stuff is that realistically, we don't have a lot of antihistamines. Most of our antihistamines are actually working on mast cells. So if you took the research at literal and said, okay, histamine involved with the changes that can come out with migraine, that patient needs to be on an antihistamine, there's not a lot I can do, then you're kind of broken there. Like the chain is is the beginning and end has happened. And so that's why I always really like to, as a researcher, 
say, okay, you know what, let's use an evidence-informed model to this discussion and not just stop at histamine and say, okay, what's going on with mast cells? How can we affect change there? What's going on with hormones? Is us modifying estradiol cycling impacting menstrual migraines because of the estradiol or because of its impact on the immune system? And so we have to start branching out and asking more of these questions because I always say you will always find the answer you're looking for, but you need to make sure you're asking the right question. That is like quote of the day, right? And so we just kind of have to expand and expand and expand and say, okay, you know what? If there is evidence for mast cells, then fantastic. Now we have our treatment options. And then you can look into what are the different things that stabilize mast cells? Is there an impact on migraines? And that's how you can expand your understanding and research there. So There has been potential treatment options when we're looking down that lens. And there's so many things coming out now with quercetin um, and not necessarily nettles. It's not very well studied, but quercetin is very, very well studied for its flavonoid compound. And part of that is through how it regulates histamine. Um, There is more research coming out now in a complex mechanistic manner in terms of regulation of the gut microbiome and its response on histamine and migraines um, and other neurogenic disorders. So looking at Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, schizophrenia, sleep disorders, addiction, um, all of those different things. We're getting a lot, a lot of data in the last little while. I was joking that it's because researchers are stuck at home instead of going to conferences and drinking. (laughs) So we seem to be getting a lot of really, really valuable information um, in the last couple of years. I know um, my, like what I use to track research is, has just been exploding. And so it's a very exciting time, but it can also be a very overwhelming time, which is why I say, again, you need to look at your question and figure out what's going on. So I won't carry on too much further because your time is super valuable, but I think it's just really important to play the story out. So when we're asking questions, again, going back to that and saying, how is this histamine response potentially related to migraine or what causes migraine to come up? Right? When you're going through these different lists, you can then connect inflammation. You can then connect the immune system. You can then connect hormonal pathways. You can put all of those things together and help to make a really massive difference. And then when you have these mechanisms and you say, okay, you know what? There is a decent amount of research to show that mast cell issues and histamine are involved. So can I give my patient an antihistamine? Definitely right? Can I help my patient to understand mast cell degranulation and stabilize that? For sure. If that gives you 50% of the way there in a migraine sufferer, that's huge. Then we can look and we can clean up all the other pieces of the puzzle. Say, okay, how is the stress response involved here? How is hormones involved here? How are other pieces of the gut involved here? Um, There's all kinds of discussions about the impact of sodium and potassium and and electrolytes and things like that. So you can be like, okay, how are these things involved here? How is blood flow involved here? Like in terms of cardiovascular damage. There's also a lot of research coming out on the autoimmune nature to migraines, and that's something that I actually have found in patients. So the autoimmune response does have, and and histamine responses do tend to go hand in hand, which is why, for example, we see Hashimoto's and one of the telltale signs is a rash, right? There's a histaminergic component to that. But 
these things all go together. And so that is where we can, again, just start to piece together the question and say, migraines in your practice, what are they most impacted by? Okay, they're mo because it's never one thing. If you're treating migraines, you have to treat all different elements. You have to treat circulation, neurological inflammation, hormonal health, et cetera, et cetera. So you can look at the patient. And again, as I said, don't treat each symptom. Um, you can treat them as a constellation and say, okay, well, this patient mainly has menstrual migraines. I can help to support that. I can take away the histamine piece, then I can support estradiol if I need to. Like and go down the list. This patient has a ton of gut issues and unpredictable migraines. Okay, we likely need to look at gut issues and go along the lines of stabilizing and supporting the histamine response. You could also say this patient has completely random migraines. They have no histamine responses. Maybe we need to go in a different direction. We need to look specifically at an autoimmune response because histamine is not involved as a trigger. It's involved as an outcome. So, I know I'm giving you, as I often do, as many questions as I do answers, but welcome to healthcare. And so I think it's just really important that we're planting the seeds of what can be involved when we are coming to understand our patients and coming to understand the medical literature. And we're coming to ask better questions and look for better answers and stop taking the like general standard of care as what needs to happen. Because we know that B2, CoQ10, magnesium, we know those things can help, right? That's played out in the literature. That's something that can make a difference. Symptomatic support is always a really important support. But then we have to go to say, okay, how are those things helping? And how can we get to a deeper mechanism and a deeper state of healing so that all other areas of that person's life is better and so that they're not relying on these crutches? So I hope that was a very helpful fact-finding mission <laughs> for you. Um, I really do love when you guys give me feedback on what you want to hear about next. Um, and I cannot wait to continually share with you all of the different research that has been coming out and evolving lately. So I will talk to you soon. And until then, read some research. <laughs>